Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Good morning. My name is Jonah. I am one of the elders here at Bergen Park Church. I'd like to uh, welcome you this morning in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Glad you guys are here. We're in the first week of Advent, and as you noticed this morning in our reading, we're looking at the theme of hope this week. So as we think about hope, we're thinking about expectancy as we anticipate the coming of Christ. And we think back to the coming of Christ into the world 2,000 years ago, but we also look forward to the return of Jesus one day. Let me pray for us before we, we get into our text today. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be gathered this morning as your body, as the church. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us, called us to worship, called us to redemption, called us to discipleship. Lord, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts this morning to receive from you, that you would speak to us through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you instruct us, Lord? Would you grow our faith, our knowledge, and our obedience to you through our our study in your word and through our worship this morning? We thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, sometimes verbal concision can be a very, very good thing. As I was preparing this message, I was thinking back about Abraham Lincoln's famous uh, Gettysburg Address. 272 words, very brief, but it was a speech that many of us probably recall a few lines from, even to this day. It was a speech that packed a punch in its day, and and that punch still remains with us even now. And and I think the, the Gettysburg Address, as I was thinking on this, is a good reminder that sometimes less is more. Sometimes a few words can, can speak volumes, right? Um, rhetorical minimalism can help sometimes unclutter our field of vision. Sometimes the Cliff Notes version of things can, can be a good thing. And, and so today, I'm going to be in John chapter 1, verse 14. This is John's kind of Cliff Notes version of the incarnation story. One verse, one sentence telling the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting because in John's gospel, he, he spends about 10 chapters just on the last week of Jesus' life. Chapters essentially 12 through 21, the last week of Jesus' life. But he spends one verse, one simple verse on the birth of Jesus. And you contrast that even with the synoptic gospels, so Matthew and Luke, for example, who tell this beautiful story of the, the, the birth of Jesus, the angel coming to announce to Mary, the journey to Bethlehem. You've got angels showing up, speaking to the, the shepherds. You have magi visiting, that, that whole story. But again, John tells it in one simple verse. So whereas the others are telling the Christmas story, uh, John's got the Christmas sentence, okay? So we're going to look at the Christmas sentence this morning. So would you open your Bibles with me to John chapter 1, and we're going to take a look at verse 14, the Christmas sentence. John 1, 14. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, bringing glory from the Father, the one and only Son, Jesus Christ, filled with grace and truth. There are three things I want to take a look at in this passage this morning, three items that John mentions. And understand, again, this is just packed with meaning. Less is more this morning. There's a lot of meaning in this text. The first thing I want to take a look at is I want us to be surprised maybe, again, renewed in our, in our wonder over the idea of the imminence of God, the nearness of God, the proximity of God to us in the incarnation. That's the first thing we'll take a look at. The second thing I want to draw your attention to is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus came filled with grace. And we might just be a little offended by that grace, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment as well, but we need to renew our, our encounter with the offense of God's grace. And the third thing I want to look at is the truth. Jesus came filled with truth, and this is a truth that disrupts us. So Christmas is about the imminence of God, the grace of God, the truth of God. So let's take a look at that first thing, the imminence of God. God's imminence, his proximity to us, his nearness should really get our attention here. See, it's not every day the God of the universe shows up in our life like, th like this, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those under law, as we read in Galatians. Now, I realize that for the modern reader, for many of us, we're familiar with John 1.14. We've read this verse. You've heard this verse. The Word became flesh. But I want to suggest that we should be a little more surprised maybe than we are by this. Because if you go back to first century readers, they would have understood this maybe in a little different way than we, we read it today. They may have found this a bit, a bit startling, a bit maybe even appalling, okay? Because for Greek thinkers leading up to the time of the incarnation, if you go back a few hundred years to Greek thinkers like Heraclitus, the pre-Socratics, and then to a great degree Plato himself, they had this thing, this concept called the logos, okay? And this is the word that we see John using here in Greek that translates literally to word in English. But the logos was a really, really important concept for Greek thinkers. And, and the, the logos was this animating kind of power behind all the activity in the universe. It was a transcendent mind. It was kind of a rational faculty, Okay, so in Greek thought, the Logos was not personal. The Logos was not embodied, was not relational or, or interested in human activity in any way, shape, or form. Okay, the, the Logos was, was mathematical, logical, rational, and even mechanical, you could say. The Logos, the word, was distant and detached and unfeeling and uncaring. The Logos was not supposed to be a walking, talking human being. Okay, but that's what John is telling us. He's rewriting for us our understanding of what this word is. Now, really what we need to understand here is that there was a very clear distinction in Greek thought between the up there and the down here. Okay, and the up there did not interact with the down here. 
Okay, we need to understand a little bit of Platonic philosophy here, I think, to, to grasp at what's going on here with, with John. So Plato had this theory called the theory of forms or form, form theory. And the idea behind that is that everything here on this plane, on, on our physical reality, is, just, is, is a shadow, really. It's a shadow of a, a higher and greater reality that exists on this plane of, of forms. So if you look outside and you see a, a horse, for example, and that horse might be a beautiful creature, a majestic creature, but it was still just a shadow of that greater reality, the horsiness, you could say, that exists on this higher plane. And so there's a very clear distinction between the up there and the down here. And this was just a shadow. The physical material reality was a shadow, okay? The real truth was, was up there. And so Plato had this distinction, and even Hebrew thinkers had this distinction, the transcendence of God. He was out there somewhere, distant from people, uh, a lot of Hebrew thinkers had been influenced by Greek thought and Greek philosophy. Uh, Philo, or Philo, however you want to pronounce it, of Alexandria, was a, was a Hellenistic a Jewish person who, who adopted a lot of this kind of thinking as well and believed in this very clear distinction between the up there and the down here. The logos was something out there. Maybe in the Old Testament it was, it was manifestations of God and the angel of the Lord or these, these kinds of concepts. But again, there was no real relationship of God with his people. And so John is turning this whole notion on its head. We have to understand what, what he's doing here to really appreciate John 1.14. I mean, just imagine the insanity of it, that you're about to sit down to dinner one night when suddenly you hear a knock at your door, and you slowly open the door and peer outside to see who's there, who's showing up, and you look out and you see the divine, universal, rational mind that animates the entire universe, and he's standing there at your front door with his suitcases about to to move in, and he's going to sleep on your couch, and he's going to eat at your table, and he's going to hang out with your family. That's the kind of thing that John is talking about here. The Word became flesh. John is taking this notion that was was common in Greek thought, and he's rewriting it. He's saying, throw out what you think you knew about the way the, the up there and the down here works. The up there is going to get close to the down here. We're rewriting our, our, our thinking here about God, about that higher plane. The logos, according to John, is God himself. The word became flesh. God was clothed in humanity. And John is asking his readers, he's asking us to grapple with the the sacrilege, the craziness of this business. In the incarnation, God is rewriting our assumptions. Jesus, God himself, pitched his tent among us. That's the idea of dwelt among us. The, The word is really tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. He came to live with us, to pitch his tent with us. And that shocked the Greeks, and it shocked the Hebrews, and it's still shocking people today. Our Muslim friends, uh, Muslim people look at, at this, and, and, and they have a difficult time grasping it. How could God become flesh? They view God as a very transcendent being who does not relate to human beings. It shocks Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the divinity of Jesus and the dual nature of Jesus. It shocks every generation of heretics who try to explain Jesus as either fully, only fully man with no divinity or fully divine with no humanity. It shocks every one of us when we try to, to grapple with this reality that the Word became flesh, that God became human. 
I think it shocks many professing Christians who can't seem to wrap our heads around the fact that the God who created the universe cares so much for us that he would send his son, the Logos, the Christ, into the world to redeem us of our sin, to live in our moral squalor, to be a recipient of our ignorance and our neglect and our abuse. The word was made flesh. God came near to us. Now, I'm going to use a metaphor here that I I stole this from a friend of mine in in a growth group meeting a a few weeks ago. This came up. So I'm going to to take it and embellish it a little bit. I thought it was a brilliant example. But this idea came up of of just anyone that you admire as a, maybe a a celebrity or, or a political leader or somebody really, really important. And just imagining that person suddenly caring for you investing in you, paying attention to you. All right, I'm going to use Queen Elizabeth II as, as my example here. I know she's dead, but I think she's a pretty good example of somebody on that higher level, that higher plane. Maybe, you know, imagine she, she one day just calls you on the phone, your personal cell phone, and, and, and just wants to check in with you and just wants to see how you're doing and just wants to care for you. Imagine that the, the queen regent of, of the commonwealth, right, the supreme monarch over 15 states, the head of the Church of England, imagine that this person who embodies power and royalty and sophistication just one day decides, hey, I, I'm, I'm going to give you a call, and I'm going to check in, and I'm going to send a lovely gift basket just because I care, and I'm going to send my personal car, my driver, my entourage, to come pick you up and take you out to a nice, a nice lunch with me because I just want to check in on you and get to know you out of the goodness of my heart. Imagine just the weirdness of that. Somebody at that level investing that kind of time in you. And if you can imagine that, we're starting to get a glimpse of just how wonderful it is that God, the Creator, would care for us, would invest in us, would love us. God gets near you because he loves you. All right, we've been in the book of Mark over the last couple of months in our, our, our preaching series here, and you've noticed this. Jesus loved people. He touched the leper, right? He let the unclean draw near to him. He cared for sinners. He ate with sinners, He showed up in people's lives because he loved them. And on the first Christmas, God surprised us with his imminence. God surprised us when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the second thing we see in this verse is that Jesus comes from the Father filled with grace. He comes filled with grace. Um, and, And this grace is a grace that offends us. And I want to explain what I mean by that. Why would I say that the grace of God offends us? Well, because God's grace, I think, does confront our pride. It confronts our self-sufficiency. Grace tells us that God is going to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And in John 1.14, John introduces us to this term that he really spends the rest of his gospel explaining And in fact, you could say that the the rest of the New Testament is a story of God's grace, how this grace shows up. 
And this is an offensive grace. See, the, the version of grace we like to talk about in the church oftentimes is a, a version of grace where we still get to do some of the work of saving ourselves. We still kind of get to be the hero of our own story. Right? God lowers the rope and then we get to climb up the rope. Or, or God gives us a nudge on our bicycle to get us going and then we, we do the pedaling after that. Um, God helps us a little so that we can help ourselves a lot. And that's oftentimes how we end up viewing grace. And I want to correct that view of grace because the Bible tells a different story. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, you could, you could turn there. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. And the ruler, or the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings, the desires of the flesh, following its thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. The Apostle Paul here is writing to the church in Ephesus and telling them essentially, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Spiritually, you were dead. And there's a reason Paul uses the word dead here, because that means completely out of it, completely under. Now, we know that dead people do not breathe life into themselves. They do not restore their rotting flesh. They do not claw their way out of the grave. That's a Hollywood zombie kind of notion. But what Paul is saying here is you were dead and your transgressions and sins, completely incapable of saving yourselves. But then God steps in. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He reminds us that we can't even contribute sufficient faith in Jesus to save ourselves. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is not of yourselves. The Greek term there, hutos, is a demonstrative pronoun in the neuter, referring back not just to grace as a gift of God, but to faith as a gift of God. Even the faith itself comes from God. Okay? Jonathan Edwards, famous uh, American uh, preacher and theologian, once said, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Think about that. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. God doesn't just lower the rope. He actually digs you out of the tomb. He breathes life into you. He restores your mind, your heart, and your soul, and he gives you purpose, and he gives you direction. This is what it means when John says that the word was made flesh and came filled with grace. And if we can't begin to come to terms with our insufficiency and with God's overabundant profusion of mercy in saving the unsavable, then we can't begin to receive the gospel. Let me take you to one more place in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. In Philippians 3, 8, the Apostle Paul has just given this, this list of all of these things that he has done. A Pharisee of Pharisees, 
of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, he, he flawless in his, his perfection in following the law. He had it all figured out. He did it right. And yet he says in verse 8, in all of this I consider to be rubbish, filthy rags, some translations will say. I consider it rubbish. All of that righteousness, all of that goodness, everything that I think I've done in the sight of God is mere rubbish. Now, I think the term rubbish or filthy rags is a pretty good translation from from the Greek. But it's interesting if you start digging a little bit, um, there are some scholars who point out that this is a pretty strong word in the Greek language. Um, Daniel B. Wallace, one of the leading uh, New Testament Greek scholars in the world out of Dallas Theological Seminary, suggests that this word probably is best translated as a four-letter word that begins with S and uh, ends with with T, and we're not going to say the word here today. I didn't say it. Okay, Paul said it. All right, Paul said it. It's a strong word, but to piggyback off from what Jonathan Edwards had said anachronistically, the only thing, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is a bucket of poop. That's essentially what is being said here. Jesus came from the Father filled with grace, grace to redeem us, grace to save us. Now, around the age of probably two or three years old, all of my children went through this particular stage where they demanded independence. They wanted to do it themselves. I'm talking about that stage where children transition from, say, you brushing their teeth to them brushing their own teeth, or you dressing them to them dressing themselves, or you feeding them to them feeding themselves. This is just a normal part of childhood development They insist that they're big enough, that they are old enough, that they are smart enough to do it themselves, to figure it out themselves. And they want to do everything themselves. Now, if you spend any amount of time around children at this age, you've, you've witnessed this. And all of my children went through this phase. One of my children in particular was flagrantly and audaciously committed to autonomy to the point of unreasonableness. I'll just say that. I'm not going to name any names or point any fingers at any of my my kids here, but one of them in particular, I'll let you guess, but one of them was just committed to this independence. And the first sentence out of this child's mouth was, me do it, me do it. And this is probably the only sentence I heard out of this child's mouth for, for months, me do it. Now, this is important because I think there's a little bit of that. In fact, I'm going to correct that. There's a lot of me do it in every single one of us. When it comes to our self-sufficiency, when it comes to our spirituality, me do it. If I just say these prayers and give my alms to the poor and serve at the soup kitchen and do this and do that and live a good life and and I'm a good wife or a good husband or a good child or a good parent or whatever, I'll probably get by okay. I'm a good person. Me do it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible tells us that there is a relationship you can't restore There's a salvation you can't achieve. There's a chasm you can't cross. There's a cliff you can't scale. 
And God's grace is good news. It's good news to those who live by that statement, me do it. Jesus came from the Father filled with grace to save us, to redeem us. And he came from the Father filled with truth. That's the last thing I want to point to, uh, point you to this morning. Jesus came filled with truth because he embodies truth. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth. See, truth disrupts our assumptions about the way things are. Truth forces us to rethink the assumptions in which we comfortably live. Honestly, most of us don't really want to know the truth because the truth is going to show us things we may not want to see. I don't really want to see my sin, and I don't want you to see it. I don't want to see my inadequacies. I don't want to see my blind spots. Truth can be offensive, and the people in the first century who encountered Jesus did not want to see the truth. The elites of Hebrew and Roman culture stood face to face with the truth. Pilate, uh, other Roman authorities, the, the Sanhedrin, uh, Pharisees, Jewish leaders, they stood face to face with the truth and they chose to silence it. They, they chose to attempt to destroy it. But Jesus came to show us that truth is, is good for us, right? We, we need to acknowledge it. We need to pursue answers. We need to grow up into the truth. Think about it this way. Think, think about a scenario here for a moment. Suppose you're, you're given one of these tiny toy pianos as a child. Have you seen these little toy pianos with just a few notes on them? And, and you, you, you're playing with your little toy piano and you, you, you learn the song Chopsticks, right? Three notes. You, just, you learn to plunk out your little song on, on your piano. And over the years, you, you begin to grow and you graduate to bigger keyboards and nicer pianos until one day you're playing on a beautiful, full-size grand piano, okay? Playing music on a grand piano. But here's the problem, here's the tragedy. Instead of maximizing the full range of notes available on that piano, instead of learning to master your instrument and, and, and playing more complex pieces by, say, Beethoven or Rachmaninoff or Mendelssohn or whatever, instead of that, you're still playing chopsticks plunking out your three notes on the grand piano, even though you've got 88 keys at your disposal. Now, in the same way as we grow in faith, as we grow in Christian matur maturity, we need to grow in the truth. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4 as well, that we would no longer be as infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and the craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. In order to be truth speakers, we need to be hearers of the truth. So there's a lot of lies out there in the world. I mean, with the internet, with access to, we've got access to just about anything you, you want. And there are a lot of people out there with a lot of opinions about God and a lot of opinions about the gospel and a lot of opinions about scripture and what it is and what it isn't, a lot of opinions about discipleship in the Christian life. There are plenty of lies 
plenty of half-truths taught by all kinds of people, Christian influencers out there in the world, and yet oftentimes we hesitate to call out the half-truths and call out the lies because we want to be polite and we want to be nice. But we aren't doing ourselves or anyone else any favors when we don't speak up for the truth in love, in gentleness. Right? There might be people in your own circle of influence. It might even be you. I, I have to correct myself. I need correction at times. That's what the body of Christ is. It's us speaking truth to each other, iron sharpening iron. Maybe people in your circle of influence undermining the authority of God's word or diminishing the power of the cross or conflating social agendas with biblical justice or making us too big and God too small. We need to call that stuff out in our own lives with each other. It's like when you're at, you know, at a dinner party or something and you've got like food on your face or a big hunk of lettuce hanging out of your teeth or something. You'd hope somebody would give you a little nudge and say, hey, you know, you you might want to check that. Instead of spending the whole night talking with a sprig of asparagus sticking out from between your front teeth or that sort of thing, we need to call out the lies we see. We need to call out the truth. We need to point these things out. There are truths about God's attributes, about his activity in history that sometimes we don't want to think about. But yet we benefit from digging into his word There are truths about our own sin nature that we don't want to think about, yet we need to. There are truths about the world that if we only knew their implications, we would be required to change something in our thinking and action. Truth is a bit disruptive, but we need the truth. Jesus came to disrupt a little bit. And I want to urge you this morning as we close to let let the Christmas story the Christmas sentence, do its work in your heart. Let Jesus surprise you. Let his grace offend your self-sufficiency a little bit, right? Let his truth disrupt maybe our, our status quo. I want to challenge you with this today. Are you letting God get close? Are you letting God draw near? Are you letting him be with you. Ask God to to show you, to show us where we need to release our spiritual autonomy into his hands. Ask God to show us where we need him in our lives. We need to invite him in. Let the word dwell among us. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the richness of your word the beauty of this word, just this statement from John and how potent, how how powerful it is in meaning. Lord, would we receive your grace this morning? Help us, Lord, to see where we've we've fallen, where we've stumbled, where we've sinned. Would you show us, Lord, and and, and just give us the ability to to be honest about our own pain and doubts and all of these things that, that can torment us at times. Lord, as you strengthen us, renew our faith. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for sending Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, into our lives. We thank you for your grace in saving us. We thank you for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.